0: instructions. Um, We use the word spaciousness and encourage you to be spacious in your practice. So this evening I'd, I'd like to try to explain and expand upon what we actually mean by spaciousness. There is a quote from the Bhagavad Vita, Bhagavad Vita. It says, teach us that even as the wonder of the stars in the heavens only reveals in the silence of the night, so too the wonder of life reveals itself in the silence of the heart. In the silence of our hearts, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe bound by love. And I kind of did another little translation to more suit this talk, literary license. (laughs) Teach us that even as the wonder of the stars only reveals itself in the vastness of the sky, so too does the wonder of this life reveal itself only in the spaciousness of our heart. In the spaciousness of our heart, we may see the scattered leaves of all the universe, connected and liberated by understanding. Now we do... Is this too loud, by the way? We do speak often of spaciousness and the way in which it is spaciousness, inner spaciousness, that allows for all things to arise and to pass, to be seen without being held. We speak about spaciousness as a, a quality of a very deep sense of ease and calmness. We speak to of spaciousness having an element of, of kindness that is really brought to touch all things. And we speak about the art of learning to surround all things inwardly and outwardly with spaciousness. And this quality of, of spaciousness is really what enables us to to see clearly, to see deeply, to see beneath the surface of things. And it is what enables us, in many ways, to lay down the, the burden of argument and worry and resistance. Now, I do think that most people tell us that they feel very strongly attracted to spaciousness. Of course, we would. We would all love to feel more spacious. Sometimes we can feel also a little bit puzzled by the word. Like, what does, what does it mean? What does it look like? Um, and even more importantly, how do we get it? How do we get there? And first, briefly, without wanting to belabor this or dwell upon it, I want to just very briefly touch upon what spaciousness is not. And it's not spaciness. (laughs) Spaciousness is not unfocused. It's not shapeless. Spaciousness is not about kind of wandering around it in a deluded, dull fog of distractedness, <laughs> because I think sometimes this quality of experience we can know more about than we ever really wanted to know. And it's not spaciousness, that, that kind of, of, of fogginess. In, in reality, it's often really quite an unpleasant sensation the, the feeling of being governed and pushed around, basically, by whatever thought or mental state or event is most predominant in the moment. And that, that kind of spaciness, it, it, you know, it has the quality of feeling lost, of feeling disconnected, of feeling confused. So that's done with what spaciousness is not. Mm-hmm. But I'd also like to suggest that spaciousness is not an it. It's not an experience to be strived for or to be gained. Basically, what we mean when we speak about spaciousness, it's about changing the lens of how we see. It's about changing the lens of how we attend to things, how we attend to life. It's about changing the lens through which we find our way to be present in all the changing moments of our minds and lives. Spaciousness is a quality really born of understanding. where there, there's, We do discover this, this quality of inner balance and poise <coughs> Where there's not so much the feeling of just being swept away by the inner and outer events of life. And yet, within that balance and poise, and this is equally important, that we we feel the freedom to respond, to offer whatever the events in our life really need. I think in that sense, spaciousness is perhaps the most natural way to be in this world. Not so much some wondrous experience, but a rediscovery of perhaps the most natural, authentic way to be in this world. And it is related to understanding, because I think to understand spaciousness We do also are asked to understand the ways that this is echoing. It's really echoing. Maybe I need to go. No, the other mic's off. We only have one mic on. Turn it down a little. I actually don't even. I have a big voice. (laughs) I'm trying to have a little voice up here because it sounds so big to me. How's that? Oh, good. There's There's kind of so good, okay. As I mentioned, spaciousness is really related to understanding. It's not so much a kind of state of mind, it's really related to a way of understanding our mind and our way of seeing. And especially, spaciousness is really related to understanding the way that we create events in our lives and the ways that we can become actually so contracted, so tight, so kind of closed down. And I think spaciousness is not really, you know, we can imagine we sit and we're supposed to have some, you know, kind of like, Bodhi tree experience, and we have some, you know, wonderful revelation of spaciousness. But I think it's not so much that. It's about the wakefulness of our hearts, the wakefulness of our hearts that really illuminates things. And I don't think that spaciousness is so much what we attain, but it's often born of what we allow to fall away born of what we allow to fall away. And I just want to read you a little story some of you will know. The poor man had come to the end of his rope, so he went to the rabbi for advice. Holy rabbi, he cried, things are in a bad way with me and getting worse all the time. We're poor, so poor that my wife, my six children, my in-laws and I have to live in a one-room hut. We get in each other's way all the time. Our nerves are frayed, and because we have plenty of troubles, we quarrel. Believe me, my home is a hell, and I'd sooner die than continue living this way. The rabbi pondered the matter gravely. My son, he said, promise to do as I tell you, and your condition will improve. I promise, rabbi, he answered, I'll do anything you say. So the rabbi asked, what animals do you own? I have a goat, a cow, a goat, and some chickens. Very well. Go home now and take all these animals into your house to live with you. <laughs> the poor man was dumbfounded, but since he'd promised the rabbi, he went home and brought all the animals into the house. The following day, the poor man returned to the rabbi and cried, Rabbi, what a misfortune you've brought upon me. I did as you told me and brought the animals into the house, and now what have I got? Things are worse than ever. My life is a perfect hell. The house is turned into a barn. Save me, Rabbi. My son, said the Rabbi serenely, go home and take the chickens out of your house. God will help you. So the poor man went home and took the chickens out of his house. But It was not long before he again came running to the Rabbi. Holy Rabbi, he wailed, help me, save me. The goat is smashing everything in the house. She's turning my life into a nightmare. Go home, said the rabbi gently, and take the goat out of the house. God will help you. The poor man returned to his house and removed the goat, but it wasn't long before he again came running to the rabbi, Rabbi lamenting loudly, What a misfortune you've brought upon my head, rabbi. The cow has turned my house into a stable. How can you expect a human being to live side by side with an animal? You're right, said the rabbi, a hundred times right. Go straight home and take the cow out of your house. And the poor unfortunate hastened home and took the cow out of his house. Not a day had passed before he came running again to the rabbi. Rabbi, cried the poor man, his face beaming, you've made my life sweet again. With all the animals out, the house is so quiet, so roomy, so clean. What a joy. (laughs) What falls away? This is a question we could ask of ourselves. What could we allow to fall away in this moment, to allow more spaciousness to emerge? It's a question not only for this moment, but it's also a question for our lives. And we're not talking about letting the important things of our lives fall away that we need to attend to. But what in our hearts, what in our minds, could we allow to fall away for that spaciousness to shine? I want to give you just a few examples of spaciousness, because they are clues. When you walk into this room, Notice how your attention is so easily drawn to all the things in this room. The cushions, the mats, the people, the chairs, the lights. And notice, as you begin to notice and see all the things in the room, how the waterfall of preferences can begin to flow. You know, I like this cushion. I don't like that one. I like that plant. I think that one shouldn't be here. How we start the argument for and against, stimulated by our relationship to the things. Now, suppose you walk into this room another time, and you just make a slight adjustment in your focus, in the lens through which you're seeing. And just notice the space in the room, the space that surrounds all the things, that makes room for everything, and how the space in the room really doesn't have any argument or worry about any of the things in it. But the space in the room is also not confined by the walls. That sense of space is without boundaries. Now, sometimes in the practice, we suggest that you, you bring your attention to hearing, to listening. And have you noticed when you do that, or when we do that, how we almost automatically, it seems, begin to look for a sound to listen to? Listen to, look for a sound to attend to. And usually, we'll find some. One or two sounds. And the same process can begin in the mind and the heart. We like some sounds, we dislike others. Some we'd like to stay, others we'd like to go. We have a different relationship to the bird than to the car on the road. Now, again, what is it like to just slightly shift the focus and listen without seeking a sound? Now, some would say that makes no sense to listen without looking for a sound. But maybe it does. Maybe we can learn just to rest in listening without preferences, sensing the silence and the silence from which the sounds emerge and the sounds fall back. We give the encouragement to be mindful of breathing to be mindful of the in-breath, the out-breath, to be mindful also of the pauses between breaths. Now, have you noticed how we can absolutely tie ourselves in knots about this? You know, we become the breather. We're waiting for the next breath to begin. We're concerned if it's the right way to breathe. Is there a better breath to have? But we can also learn actually, to rest in the pause between breaths, to let the breathing breathe itself. Trungpa Rinpoche, years ago, he brought into the meditation room during a retreat a very large piece of blue paper, light blue paper, and he encouraged everyone to associate around it what what they thought it was. And many people suggested it was the sky. And then on that piece of paper, he drew a V resting on its side. And he asked paper, what do you see? And many people answered, well, I see a bird. And he said, no. He said, actually, it's the sky with a bird in it. It's very different. Now, let's reflect for a moment on the nature, the very nature of our own mind and heart. Now, in truth, doesn't it often feel really full? More full than we would probably like it to be. When we listen to our mind and heart and, you know, here on a retreat, you get a very close-up view of this. We're often aware of this surge, almost this kind of tsunami of memories and ideas and preoccupations and images and thoughts. And we we often get very caught up in it. But what is it that allows us to know this is happening? It's awareness. It's our capacity to see, our capacity to know. But notice when we sit and walk, how easily we get drawn into the content of what's happening. And we start building on it. You know, some thoughts we isolate. We, we start having arguments with some of our thoughts and, you know, wanting some to last, wanting a lot to disappear. But what is it like to, to step back from that busyness and to rest in that seeing? to rest in the knowing. And the awareness, that knowing, that seeing, in itself, is a little bit like the sky. It doesn't have any preferences. It's like the space in the room really doesn't have a preference for the green cushion over the blue cushion. But if we really rest in the seeing, we see the thoughts, the ideas, the memories. They appear, and they pass, too, in that seeing. Now, that seeing without preference, without conditions, without isolating, we might say this is spaciousness. It's a sense of ease, of of stillness, of not holding anywhere, but at the same time so expansive, so inclusive, so present, Now, spaciousness, I think I would say on one hand, it's a cultivation. But spaciousness is also born of understanding its opposite. And this is another word that we will use a lot, the word contractedness. But the cultivation of spaciousness is a cultivation of immediacy. It's like you don't have to be an expert to do this. We do need to remember, moment to moment, that we can shift from being lost in the contents and the particulars to remembering the sense of spaciousness around the contents and the particulars. And that spaciousness can acknowledge, it can allow, and it can let things be. And we can do this in any moment, in any circumstance. But it's a practice. I'll give you an example. Now, no doubt today you've had one or two thoughts arise. (laughs) Some of them just arise and just flit away, don't they? But you'll notice thoughts can arise that feel quite laden, quite charged with feeling, um, with emotions, with anxiety. Some of those more charged thoughts have quite a lot of history. And we can see the inclination to, to feel imprisoned, to become lost. And it's not intentional. You know, none of us wants to be lost, imprisoned. It's not intentional at all. It's more it's a habit. And you can feel like some of those charged thoughts. You get drawn in, and you can feel the beginning of building a world of the moment. Now, have you noticed today that when you get really drawn into a thought that feels quite charged, how everything else that is also a reality in that moment starts to disappear? Like when you get really drawn into a thought, like your sense of your body, your awareness of your body, it starts to disappear. Um, sounds can suddenly start, it seems to disappear. Your other senses, you know, they just seem to fade and disappear. Now, what if that happens? And it does happen. Now, what if you were able to remind yourself in that moment to reconnect and reclaim your awareness of everything that has begun to disappear? So the thought is there. It feels very charged. You can feel yourself getting drawn into it. Everything else starts to fade away. Now, what if you could remind yourself in that moment, ah, the body is here. Listening is here. The touch of the air on my skin is here. And you can feel, instead of this tightening and contracting, you can get the sense that your awareness, again, begins to expand and to be inclusive. Now, the difficult thought is still there. It's still present, but it's arising in the landscape of the whole of the moment, the entirety of the moment. Now, we sit and a sound arises. It may be pleasant or unpleasant. And, again, you can sort of see that if we glom on to the sound, (laughs) we start to build, again, this sense of of narrative, you know, the associations, the contractedness. What kind of bird is that, you know? Next time I come here, I'm going to bring my bird book. I'm going to bring my binoculars, you know. Or if it's the sound of a garbage truck, you know, you see another kind of contractedness happening, you know, like, like garbage trucks shouldn't be allowed on the grounds of meditation centers. You know, they're disturbing my awareness. You know, next time I'm going to bring my earplugs. And we disconnect. We disconnect from the whole of the moment. Now, what we are experiencing in that process is what we would describe as contractedness. It's this tightening and narrowing of awareness. In a a way, it's a kind of shrinking of vision. It's like a shrinking of vision. And it's a sacrifice of spaciousness. Now, I would really encourage you to get a feeling for this. Not just think about it, but get a feeling for this, what it feels like, that contractedness, what it feels like to release. Now, very often, we do indeed get lost in the contractedness. And it can feel like there's no way out. But in my understanding, to find our way out of contractedness, we also need to understand how we got in. How we got in. It's important to get that felt sense of what contractedness actually is—the resistance, the tightening, the defensiveness, the fear, the tension. It's so important to know that in your bones, to know to know how to recognize it. Like it's a little alarm bell that goes off. Um, I mean, sometimes contractedness can feel kind of entertaining. You know, like if you've got like a fantasy going on, you know, or some really pleasant story you're building on, you know. It can feel kind of entertaining, but actually mostly it's really a drag. Mostly it's suffering. But it's also important to get a felt sense of spaciousness, to explore it, to be intimate with it, to allow it, to know its easefulness. I think also important not to create a dualism in our mind, because it's very easy when we think about this to imagine that spaciousness is somehow going to be born of annihilating everything that gets in the way. It's like we're going to get spaciousness if we move all the furniture out of the room. You just have an empty room. You know, and spaciousness is not born of annihilating thought or events or experience. That's like trying to annihilate life. You know, and this practice is certainly not anti-thought. You know, my understanding of this practice is that we are learning an intelligent mindfulness. You know, not a mindless mindfulness. We are learning an intelligent mindfulness and engaged mindfulness. But what we're also learning is perhaps to develop the habit of spaciousness rather than the habit of contractedness. Because it's so important to understand that these dualisms don't exist in this teaching. That nowhere does the Buddha promise a freedom that is divorced from the grist of our lives. That nowhere does he speak of a disembodied path. But there's a lot of encouragement to remove the dust from our eyes. And a lot of encouragements to, to really begin to know that sense of spaciousness here and now and running through all things. Running through through the sunbeams on the grass and the trees and through our own bodies and minds. There's the encouragement to let go of our illusions and to learn to to soften this tension of being pulled by one thing and pushed by another, one event after another. And spaciousness is really imminent, you know? It's not outside of events. It's not even outside of the habit of contractedness. We could say that every moment when there is this kind of contractedness and tightening, that is the doorway to spaciousness. You know, Dogen, he once said, he said, Treading along in this dreamlike, illusory world, without looking for the traces I may have left, a cuckoo's song beckons me to return home. Hearing this, I tilt my head to see who has told me to turn back. But do not ask me where I am going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is my home." There is no blame. There's no blame attached to being caught in dramas and fabrications and events. It's not that I should wake up. It's that I could wake up. Not that I should, but that I could wake up. Sometimes we wake up from contractedness after a very long time, but it doesn't matter. The waking up for most of us involves a very deep recognition that to cling to anything at all in this life is to instantly increase the amount of torment and pain in our hearts—that to cling to anything at all is to magnify fear and self. You know, Buddha. The Buddha summed up this teaching in a very few words. He said, "Nothing at all should be clung to as me or mine." And to know that really deeply, to know that really deeply. I mean. The felt sense of knowing that really deeply that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me as my or me or mine—it's to instantly increase the felt sense of spaciousness in all moments. You know, at m- outside my home, you know, a house I've lived in. Oh, I guess for about twenty years or something. On the garden in the front of my house, I had this most, most beautiful silver birch tree. It was so big, it was so big, and it was so amazing. And, uh, you know, some months ago, um, these folks came around and told me I had to cut down my tree. Big, my tree, notice the mine. <laughs> Notice the mite still seethes a bit, because the roots were actually breaking up all the water pipes and the sewer pipes of all my neighbors. And when they came and told me this, I mean, it, I didn't do it physically, but I sort of went into this major snit for a moment. You know, it was like psychologically, emotionally, I sort of like crossed my arms and stamped my foot and basically said no. No, you know, no way, you know. And my tree is my clinging. I mean, fortunately, I have to say, I'm very happy. It didn't really last very long, you know. And of course, it was sad that this tree had to be cut down. But, you know, from another perspective, why on earth would I imagine that this tree was exempt from impermanence? Um, you know, and the absence of the tree was obviously going to turn into something else. And since when was it my tree in the first place? But it was certainly my suffering. You know, the moment it became my tree, it really became my suffering. And the moment I could see that, I could see like this shift, like this psychological shift in my mind. Of shifting from wrong view into wise view. As long as I was stuck in the wrong view, I was miserable. The moment I could just make that little shift into wise view, I was instantly quite happy. You know, I was instantly quite happy. It was so interesting to see that, that movement from contractedness into spaciousness. Really questioning whether, really, the inner happiness or well-being was really determined by this tree. I mean, of course it was sad. You know, loss is sad. But it is not allowing, or it is seeing that the moment that there's clinging, whatever we cling to becomes a gatekeeper of our happiness. Now, if we stand back, I think one way of seeing life is a kind of flow, this river, this river of causes and conditions. Causes and conditions that began long before we were ever born, and causes and conditions that will continue long after our death. And in truth, our life is really an event born of countless other events that went before us, an event that began with our birth and an event that will end with our death. Now, this event of our life, of course, is precious, just as all lives are precious. But notice in this event of our life that we tend to mark Our happiness and our sorrow, by the vast number of events that happen within this framework, gain, loss, achievement, failure, sickness, health, pleasure, pain, moments of excitement, moments of fear, things we choose to do, things we choose not to do. Our mind is often full of all the events that have already passed or yet to come. And our mind is often full of all of the events that are preoccupying us in the present. If you look at our, your mind now, if you look at your mind during the last sitting, in truth, you see that there is limitless ground for preoccupation. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, it's said that preoccupations don't end until the moment we die but they end when we put them down. This is their nature. Now, in in wise understanding, in this river of event, events we call life, there's also a limitless ground for spaciousness. But what is an event? Hmm? What makes something an event out of causes and conditions? that run through the whole universe, including our own body and mind. We see that causes and conditions are constantly coming together, changing in a vast range of different combinations and shapes. You know, from the moment you got up this morning, how those causes and conditions have come together in different shapes. And so we have events that run through our whole day. You know, we sit, we walk, we have lunch, you know, we, we breathe, we, we see things, you know, causes and conditions, just constantly to coming together in different shapes, staying together for a while, and then changing into something else. Today, we've had sun. Tomorrow, we may have rain. Today, it was cold. Who knows what tomorrow will be? It's kind of, it's, it's like we're not really in control of all of those causes and conditions, are we? We cannot get up in the morning and say, it's going to be a sunny day, as if all of the causes and conditions in this universe are going to obey our whims. But it never stops us trying, does it? <laughs> never stops us trying. Hmm? We're not in control, but we're not helpless. I mean, because we see that some causes and conditions are really come together in a shape that's really born of wise intention for you to come here, you know, to be here in this particular event. You know, took a certain intentionality, a thought, you know, you needed to make a certain amount of effort. But some causes and conditions can also be shaped by very much a lot of confusion and, you know, collective delusion you know, wars, oppression, destruction. But let's look for a moment a little bit more specifically at our own lives and our own relationship to events. Now, isn't it true that we often see ourselves as being at the center of the world? (laughs) Isn't that ridiculous? But it's also so true. (laughs) You know, we see ourselves as being not only the center of the world, the center of the universe. You know, I make things happen or things happen to me. Now what we feel? I make things happen or things happen to me. And it's really hard at in the center of the universe. It's really hard to imagine a life that is not marked by events. Because we think, like, who would, would we be? What would get us out of bed in the morning? You know, What would give meaning and direction to our lives if we didn't have the story to tell about all the events, who I was, who I used to be? I would be nobody. Because what we see that our sense of self, of who we are, is also an event. Isn't that interesting? It's an event that's shaped by other events. You know, a, an unhappy thought arises, I'm sad. You know, a plan arises, I'm the planner. A happy thought arises, I'm happy. Look, two events coming together, globing together. Codependent, coexistent. You notice how many, t- that's changed so many times today. You notice it? And yet every time these causes and conditions come together in one way, we think this is the absolute truth. It's always going to be like this. We forget. We get amnesiac. What holds that together? It is clinging. Now, what would our life look like if we took that particular cause and condition out of the equation? Can we imagine not clinging? And I might say nobody goes through a day clinging all the time. But we don't even notice the moments that we're not clinging. I bet there were a lot today. You know, we sort of imagine we're chronic clingers. <laughs> you know, every moment of our day engaged in clinging, because we sure notice the moments when there is clinging, because they hurt. But we often don't notice the moments that where there's no clinging. And I'd really encourage you to notice those moments, because those moments when there's no contracting, They give you a little bit of a taste of freedom. And they give you a little bit of taste of spaciousness. Can you stand out in the lawn and look out over the hills? Or stand in the forest amidst the trees, wanting nothing, no preferences, just being there? Get a taste of that non-clinging. Get a taste of that spaciousness. And sense what it would be like also to find that in the midst of the places that can feel so tight and so contracted. Because we need to learn the lessons from our own life. We need to learn the lessons from our own experience. We need to to read, read ourselves inwardly. Now, events are made by isolating certain configurations of conditions. And you notice what clinging does is it does create amnesia. Because we forget about impermanence, and we forget about spaciousness. Now, let's take lunch, Okay, on a retreat. It's a big event. (laughs) Now, suppose you turn up for the event (laughs) of lunch. And lo and behold, you're being served something you really don't like. And you can feel, it's okay not you don't have to like everything. But you can feel the response of unhappiness. Unhappiness. The unhappy self arises. And it creates time. It creates past, present, future. We lean lean back into the past. I mean, it's only tempeh or something we don't like. But here we're already back in the past, you know. And all the times we've been unhappy in our whole life. We remember almost every one of them, you know. It's like they're just waiting. I was, I used to be, I was. We start leaning forward into the future, imagining all the future lunches we have yet to eat <laughs> and all the unhappiness we have yet to experience. <laughs> what comes next? What comes next? And as I mentioned in the question period today, in true spaciousness, there is no next. The next is the events we are imagining. With all their associated emotions and feelings, can we just rest where we are? Kabir even said, he said, don't go outside your house to see flowers. My friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body, there are flowers. One flower has a 1,000 petals. That will do for a place to sit. Sitting there, you will have a glimpse of beauty inside the body and out of it, before garden, gardens, and after gardens. You know, notice when we create an event, we have to, you know, if there's an unhappy event, we think we have to make a happy event. You know, so if there's an unhappy event, we think, you know, say here in retreat, you know, happy lunch, I'm going to have a happy walk. How do we know? Maybe we need to go no further than actually the place we're standing to find that happiness. Maybe we don't need to go anywhere at all, on no excursion at all, to find more beauty than is right here. Here's another example. This may be familiar to you. Have you ever found yourself looking at your watch in the midst of a sitting or walking? It's okay, you know. I know lots of people do it, you know. And you're waiting for the bell. Isn't that interesting? We're imagining a better or a worse next, usually a better one. (laughs) But could we just relax in that and say just this? The conditions will change, you know, the bell will ring. There'll be a new configuration, but the river of conditions will keep flowing. Guess what? The bell will ring. The 45 minutes will be up. We'll still be breathing. We'll still be in this body. We'll still be in this mind. We'll still be thinking and feeling. Do we really think the bell is going to save us? Or is it more the sense what is really going to provide that lifeline, is to reconnect with that easefulness of spaciousness, of just this, just this, just this. It is easier to swim with the flow of conditions in a wise way than against it. And then we see perhaps we can begin to life live the life we wish to live. Welcoming, embracing, balanced, allowing spaciousness. Perhaps when there is no next, we can start to live the peace, the calm we long for. Spaciousness has much to do with this art of not creating next, of not constructing, not fabricating, not contracting. In a way, I, I think of it as the art of resting in eventlessness. Eventlessness. Amidst all the changing conditions in our lives, to learn to see without the seer, to think without the thinker, to listen with a, without the hearer. Eventlessness is not indifference, but it's a release of contractedness and to get the felt sense of that. Learning to attend is the forerunner of spaciousness, to be mindful of our minds, to begin to calm the layers of agitation and restlessness, to begin to brighten the layers of dullness and cloud, to begin to get the sense of how your world of this moment is really being built and shaped and constructed, and to know it is just the world of this moment, just as many worlds have been built and have fallen away. Happiness, anxiety, worry, fantasy, imagining. Let them be. Let them be seen. Expand your view into the seeing, the knowing, just like the sky holds the moon and the stars and the sun. Spaciousness is not bereft of wisdom. It is born of wisdom. When we expand our view, really what we see in that spaciousness is the Four Noble Truths. We see what suffering is, but this too is not clung to as me or mine. Pain is pain, suffering is suffering. We see that sometimes suffering is born of conditions outside of our control. Bodies do get sick. Minds can be distracted, hearts can be broken, but we also see that what really makes these changing conditions in our lives so much more difficult are the forces of craving and aversion, the forces of contractedness, because this is the stuff of contractedness, craving, aversion, resistance. But we can also see the end of suffering, that capacity to soften the clinging, to soften the contractedness, and to begin to know the path to the end of suffering in this moment. We really do learn in this practice to contemplate the body as the body, feeling in feeling, mind in mind, to cling to nothing as me or mine, and running through all of the events, that sense of calm spaciousness. We don't have to go far to find it. Ajahn Chah, he said, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. The world will come and go in that stillness this is the happiness of a Buddha. Hmm. If we take just a moment quietly to it. <laughs> encourage you to take this time for some walking and, and to come back for the last group sitting of the day thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org donate